We're in our series, Maker's Mark, where we're discussing different emotions and feelings that we have as humans or different experiences we have. Um, and it's, we're learning that some of those things that maybe we initially don't like about ourselves or those things that we are uncomfortable with or we don't like to interact with or we're not sure how to handle, that those emotions or those things about us are actually part of our maker. In fact, it's the mark of our maker on us. So far, we've learned about anger, right? We learned that God is slow to anger, that uh, we should try to imitate that and be slow to anger, not quick to anger. That we also learned that God is with us in sadness. In fact, we learned through the uh, life of Jesus that he experienced sadness. So when we are sad or when we're hurting or we're experiencing sorrow, that the Lord is with us through that. Then last week, Rachel did a great job talking about the love of God and how we experience love, but if we want to experience Christ-like love, then it's going to cost us something. And we have to decide up in front of the whole thing that we're going to make that decision and we're going to pay the price. This week, the, the emotion is uh, something that is available. It's actually something that's available for all of us, but few of us interact with. Just to be honest, many of us don't interact with it. Many Christians don't interact with it because we forget that we have access to it. The other ones are kind of emotions we feel and things that, that we feel about ourselves. This is something we have access to that we don't always get a hold of, and that's joy. You can experience joy. And did you know that the Lord experiences joy? God experiences joy. And you go, Brandon, what are you talking about? Well, Jesus goes over these three separate parables. And in these three parables, he's explaining the love of God, and he's explaining the emotions of God and the joy of the Lord. And in, these are the parables of the lost things, for those of you that know your Bible. And in these parables, he talks about the lost sheep, he talks about the lost coin, and then he talks about the prodigal son. And in those three stories, each time the person, the God character in those stories is joyful when the lost thing has been returned to him every time, whether it's the coin, whether it's the sheep, or whether it's the prodigal son. The prodigal son, we get the biggest indication of it because we see the father rejoicing regardless of what the son has done when he comes back to the house. The father is joyful, rejoices, throws a big feast, so God experiences joy, and you can experience joy too. You can experience joy, but many of us in this room don't, and that's because we've got joy confused with happiness. For many of us, they're one and the same, but the truth is, is they are actually different because happiness is influenced by external things. Joy is influenced by internal things. So if you're happy, it's because of circumstances a lot of times. Happiness is totally built upon your circumstances. And that means it ebbs and flows with how life is going for you. Life is good, we're happy. Life is bad, we're unhappy, right? You guys experience this. Let me give you a real easy example of it. You're watching your football team. And they lose on a field goal at three seconds left. Not speaking from experience from the Ohio State game against Georgia or anything, but they lose three seconds with a field goal, 51 yards, right? 
And right then, happiness is not the emotion you might be experiencing. You might be experiencing something, but it's not happiness. Maybe you even said a bad word. That's the 11 o'clock. That's not the 9 o'clock. The 9 o'clock doesn't use bad words. I know you guys don't. You're the holy crowd because you're here so early. But the, uh, but the 11, those are the heathens. Um, but maybe you didn't, you didn't feel joyful or happy at all. In fact, you sat back and you were like, I ain't happy at all, right? I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about. Now, that's a silly example, but it's true in your life. It's true in different areas of your life. Isn't it true that in your marriage, when things are going really good, you're happy? But when things are not going really good, you're not happy. Now, the, again, happiness is separate from joy. When things are going really good with your kids, you're happy, right? You're good. When things are not going good with your kids, you're not happy. You're not good. When things going well at work or in your career, you just got the promotion, you're happy. No problems at all. But when things aren't going good or when you got to work with Susie, and nobody likes working with Susie, but you got put on that project with Susie, but you're stuck with her, all of a sudden circumstances have made you unhappy, right? You've experienced this in all aspects of your life. Joy is not happiness. Joy is actually deeper. It's a spiritual and an emotional piece. In fact, joy is the catalyst for happiness. It's almost a building block for happiness. And so many of us are told today that we don't have access to it or we walk around with no joy. And we walk around because we somehow think that happiness and joy are connected or that they are the same thing and they are simply not. They're not the same thing. You can be upset and still be joyful. You can be frustrated and still be joyful. You can be sad and still be joyful. You go, Brandon, how do you, how do, you do that? Well, we're going to cover that in a little bit, but, but I think we've missed something. I think we've settled for a substitute that's not as good as the original thing. And I can make no better case than the Apostle Paul does in his letters. Now, over and over in his letters, the Apostle makes a case for joy. Now, the letter we're studying today, he writes, he writes to the church in, the church in Philippi. So this is an area, and we, this is another thing we need to pay attention to the way Paul writes. He's writing from jail. Okay? It's important that we pay attention to the circumstances in which Paul writes this letter. He writes this letter in around 62 AD, so this is about 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. Christ was crucified and resurrected around 35 AD, and then Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi around 62 AD, so about not even quite 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. And to this point, Paul has had an amazing story. Paul, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, Paul was originally Saul of Tarsus. That was his Jewish name. And he was uh, training to be a pharisaical Jew. He was part of the religious system or was training to be part of the religious system. What he did is he would go around and uh, he would train at the synagogue and then go to the different areas and he would learn about, all, about, the, about Yahweh. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus proclaims to be the Son of God. And Jesus proclaims to be able to speak for Yahweh. Well, that causes problems for Paul. Paul doesn't like that. He's got a problem now. And then when Jesus dies, and you know, he probably thinks, good, finally that, that teacher's done. And then he's resurrected, and everybody starts following Jesus. Well, now Paul, or Saul from Tarsus, has a big issue. Because in his mind, those Christians are leading the people away from the one true God. So there's an issue. 
And then in Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul has the Damascus Road experience, for those of you that have heard that before. What happened is, is as Paul's riding his horse, he gets knocked off his horse by a bright light. He's met with the resurrected Christ who says, why are you doing this, Paul? We're on the same team, homie, chill. Something like that. That's a paraphrase. And then, that's a new, that's a new living translation. And then, and then after that, Paul has to go to a Christian and when he goes to this Christian, this Christian has to pray for him. Now remember, Paul has been persecuting Christians all the way up to this point. He's been persecuting Christians. We have no hard documented evidence that Paul killed Christians, but it's likely he subjected them to, to be killed. And it's also likely that he arrested them. And it says in Acts chapter 8 that he approved of them killing the apostle Stephen. So Paul has to go see this Christian to get healed. And then he goes, sees the Christian, his eyes, uh, the scales are lifted from his eyes and he can see again. His life has changed never to be the same. After that, Paul goes on proclaiming the gospel all across the Mediterranean area. He becomes the missionary. He does multiple missionary trips. He interacts with Simon Peter. Peter, you know, Peter, cut your ear off, Peter, that Peter. He interacts with Peter. They don't get along that well because there's two contrasting personalities. But they figure out how to work in leadership together inside of the church. And what's really impressive is what Paul writes after everything he's been through. So up to the point of this letter we're about to read, the Apostle Paul has been arrested numerous times, numerous times. He has been beaten numerous times for proclaiming the gospel, numerous times in multiple different cities. He's planted dozens of churches to this point. In fact, the church in Philippi, he planted it. You can read about it in Acts. He planted the church in Philippi. So he's writing to them. There's a great love there. He was shipwrecked. He, they were transporting him as a prisoner, and the ship, the ship started to sink during a storm and crashed into an island in which Paul was left there alone, bitten by a snake on that island. Paul's had been put through the ringer. He's been stoned, not recreationally, like the bad kind. Like with the rocks where they throw at you, not like this kind, okay? I'm just, I just have to clarify that it's not the same thing, okay? That he was, he was stoned and he survived, right? He survived. Some of you are like, I've been stoned and survived. Not that, different. But he, he survived, so he's experienced a lot of life, okay? And it's all been, all this bad, these bad things that have happened to him are because of his faith, because of what he said about Jesus all of a sudden, everybody wants him dead. The temple wants him dead because he was a pharisaical Jew, and now he's proclaiming Jesus. That was a big problem, so the temple wanted him dead. And then the Romans wanted him dead because he's still talking about this Jesus. The Greeks wanted him dead because he's not talking about Zeus anymore. There's a problem. They needed to get rid of him. And then to further instigate the problems, Paul's going around telling everybody about it. It's a big issue. But Paul has gone through so much in his life to this point where he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. Now, knowing the environment that he's in, he's speaking to a Greek, a Greek city, lots of pagan worshipers, and he's speaking to a Gentile group, so they're non-Jewish, they don't have that Jewish background. He's trying to get them to see something. He's trying to guide them. And this comes at the end of his letter. At the end of this letter, this is almost like his above all else, everything else I've said, pay attention to what I'm about to say right now. And he says this, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Then he, he, just in case you missed it, he says, I will say again, Rejoice. 
Remember everything Paul's been through. He's been arrested, beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, not for fun. And it's a, he, he is sitting back, and he writes to the church in Philippi, and they are experiencing persecution in the same way that he is. And he's writing to this church that's got hostile people on all areas around it, and he says, hey, rejoice, always. Rejoice, always. Now, for those of you that believe happiness, and for those of us that believe happiness is joy, we sit back and go, I can't do that. I can't rejoice. It's based on my circumstances, right? The implication for the Apostle Paul is that joy is a choice. That means we must choose joy. It's a decision that you have to make. It's not something that's forced upon you by your circumstances, and it's not a result of your circumstances. It's a position of your heart because of what you know about yourself and what you know about your heavenly Father and what he believes about you and what he gave up for you, that you can choose joy. Joy is a choice to be made, not a feeling to be felt. Happiness is a feeling. Joy is a choice. You have to decide that you are not going or you have to decide that you are going to be joyful. That's why the apostle says, rejoice, always. Because if it's happiness, we're going to go, can't be happy all the time, dude. Like, come on. This isn't, come on, this isn't Teletubbies. We ain't happy all the time, bro. Chill, right? So we sit back and we go, that wasn't in my notes. That was for you. I was trying to think of something that everybody does. I remember watching Teletubbies with my little brothers. By myself. <laughs> he doesn't even have brothers. Um, I do, I have two. <laughs> anyway, joy is a choice. Not a, it's not a feeling, right? It's not a feeling. You have to decide ahead that you're going to be joyful. And you go, Brandon, what's the basis for that? We're going to get to that in just a second. But you have to choose joy. Like when your kids fought on the way to church today, you had to choose joy when you came through that door, right? Because you're like, I'm going to slap those kids. And then you're like, but not in the house of the Lord. Right? So you had to choose joy then? You, have to, you had to choose joy? Have you ever fought with your husband? Right? You have to choose joy when you're fighting with your husband because he wants to put that big screen TV in the room, and you're like, that big screen TV does not go in the room. The room's too small. And he is 100% believes it belongs in that room, and I agree with him. But you don't, and you have to choose joy, right? Or he wants to mount a deer head somewhere, and you have to choose joy, right? It's a choice that you have to to make. It's a choice that you have to make. You have to choose joy when your child takes a permanent paint marker and runs up and down the hallway. You have to run up and down the hallway and up and down the hallway and then on the door. You have to choose joy when they do that. You have to choose joy when they ride it on their feet and on their body. That's my Elijah, and I love my Elijah. But my Elijah went and grabbed a uh, permanent paint marker, the construction kind, you know? And he was about two at the time, and he's perfect height to put it right here. And he, we heard him thumping, because our bedroom's downstairs, so we can hear him thumping. And all you hear is, and back and forth, over and over and over again. And then we come up, and I get right to the landing, where the landing, you can see the hallway, and I go... I had to choose joy. 
You guys know what I'm talking about. Choosing joy is not easy, but it's important. Choosing joy is important to our psyche and our spiritual well-being. In fact, Purdue University did a study, and they found certain things about being joyous, choosing to be happy. It can improve your relationships, they found out. They found out that it can enhance your productivity. They found out it can promote better health better health behaviors when you choose to be a joyous person. And it can even lead to better immune function because they're more resistant to colds when you choose to be joyous. And you don't let circumstances influence you the way the world around us does. And you go, okay, Brandon, that's good, but that's tough. How do I do that? What's that look like? Well, lucky for us, the apostle doesn't leave us hanging. He actually gives us a peek behind the curtain, and he's like, here's how you choose joy. So he's like, lean in, pay attention. Here's how you choose joy. The very next verses, starting in verse 5, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, he says this because the apostle thought that, that Christ was going to return in his lifetime. That's why he says the Lord is near. And then he says, do not be anxious about anything. Listen. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, wait a minute, Paul, we would all say, hold on. You never said that God was going to answer those petitions the way I wanted. In fact, Paul, you never even said he was going to answer those petitions. You just said, I petition him. But you didn't say he's going to answer them at all. So that doesn't make me feel good, Paul. And what do you mean that I'm supposed to trust him or, or talk to him in every single circumstance? And then I'm supposed to be thankful regardless of the circumstances? Is that the implication, Paul? I mean, come on. You can't honestly say that. And here's the tension point that's going to get you today, that if you grew up with the God exists to make me happy God, if that's, if that's what it is, I like to call him boyfriend or girlfriend God, where they just exist to make you happy. If that's the God you've been handed or that's the God you believe in, then, then this is going to make you uncomfortable and the Apostle Paul's theology is not quite going to fit with yours because that's not what God does. This is, might offend you a little bit. God's doesn't, he's not interested in your happiness as much as he's interested in your holiness. And in moving closer to him, you will be happier. But his main goal is to move you closer to him. For some of us, that's very uncomfortable because you've been told God's all about making me happy all the time. But the apostle is very clear, that's not it. Jesus is very clear, that's not it. That he actually cares about our holiness more than he cares about our happiness. It's not that he doesn't. It's just when those two get together, he cares far more about your holiness than your happiness. Paul says that his indication or his implication of this is that there's a trust that has to happen with you and God. That if you are going to choose joy, there's a trust that has to happen. You have to be willing to trust God in your circumstances. And when you trust God in your circumstances, that ability to choose joy and be joyous is possible. But without trusting the Lord, how could you be joyous? Because if you don't believe in a God or if you don't trust the Lord, then guess what? You are subject to your circumstances all the time, every day. And the world can throw you around as much as it likes. For some of you, it has. 
And because of that, your emotions are constantly out of whack because you do not have the joy of the Lord, because you struggle with the trusting of God. Now, trusting him is not going to solve all your problems. So I don't want to give you a a false indication there, but I do want to tell you that when you begin to trust God with the things of your life, when that starts to happen, you begin to have access to that joy that we talked about in the beginning. You can choose joy if you begin to trust the Lord. I say it this way, as your trust in God grows, your peace in life grows with it. Notice the Apostle Paul right after he says, you know, you've got to trust God with petitions and thanksgivings and talk to him and prayer and all those things. Right after that, he says, the peace of God. So you can have the peace of God, but you can't have the peace of God if you're still holding on to everything and not letting him do anything. You can't have the peace of God if you're restricting things. You can't have the peace of God if you're holding on to things saying, God, I trust you in this area of my life, but I don't trust you over here. God, I'll give you that section, but I need you to stay away from my career. Not interested in you over there. Don't want you over there, in fact. Over there, you get messy. Get messy when I bring God in there. So I don't want God in there. I want God right here. And stay in your nice little box. I, got, I built you a box, God. Aren't you happy? It's a box. It's a God box. You stay in it, but I don't, I don't want you anywhere else. And then we wonder sometimes, well, I just want the peace of God. Well, he's not going to force himself into places you don't invite him. He'll sit in the box as long as you ask him to. And you'll feel him press, and you'll feel him say, hey, hey, I want that section. I want to come over here. I want to do this. Trust me with these things. And you will press against it. And when that happens, you're denying yourself what the apostle says, the peace of God, because you are not willing to trust him. So when the apostle says, rejoice, rejoice always, Okay, I need to choose joy. How do I do that? Well, it starts with you trusting God. You have to trust him. Because you can't choose joy without first choosing to trust. It's a barrier. It's almost inaccessible. You almost can't choose joy if you don't trust the Lord. Because how can you choose joy? If God doesn't have it in his hands, who does? I mean, who does? I don't know. The government? Dear God. <laughs> right? I hope that's not the case. Who, who, who has it? Right? I mean, if he doesn't have it together, how can you be joyful? If you don't place your trust in him, how can you be joyful? If you don't place your trust in an eternal God that loves you and cares about you and loves you so much he sent his son to die for you, if you don't place your trust in him, who are you placing your trust in? You? You gonna figure it out? You ain't yet. Like, I'm just saying, for so many of us, we sit back and we say, I've got it all. I can handle it. No big deal. It's me. I got it. And then we wonder why we don't have any joy. And it's because we're not willing to trust God with different aspects of our life. And everybody in here, we trust God with some things. I don't doubt that. Everybody in here, me included, we trust God with some things. There's some areas of our life where, God, you can just run wild, particularly in here, right? We're so all, this is safe. We're all safe in here. It's all good, right? We can sit back and, hey, you know, God, have your way in the building, but don't have your way on the way home, Okay. 
I ain't, I ain't interested in that. I'm so down to love thy neighbor in the church, but when I have to love thy neighbor and they don't cut their grass, I don't love thy neighbor. <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's hard. It's easy to do it in here. And choosing to trust God and follow his commands and all those things, it's tough to do. And if you're a Jesus follower, you've experienced this before. You know how hard it is to follow God. You know how hard it is to trust God. And if you're not a Jesus follower and you hear this and you go, that seems really difficult, you're right, it is. And if you're a Christ follower and you're sitting in here and you go, yeah, I got a lot of areas. I struggle trusting God here, 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 and here. I struggle trusting God. I struggle trusting God. Hey, hey, let me give you, let me give you a little bit of, of, of an exhale. It's okay. Trusting God is hard. It just is. That's why the apostle writes about it so much. If it was easy, Paul would never write about it. That's like why they reference love thy neighbor so much in the Bible. Because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. But it's not easy. It's hard. Trusting God with every aspect of your life, my goodness, that's terrifying at times, isn't it? Let's just be honest. It can be so scary. Trusting God with every aspect of your life. Because what if he doesn't do what you asked him to? What if his call for your life is different than your vision? What happens then? What happens when he wants you to change something? What, what, what happens when that, when that happens in your life? How does that happen to your faith? And let's just be honest for just a second. It's hard to trust a God you can't see. It'd be really easy if every time we prayed, Jesus just showed up. You know what I mean? Like you have your personal prayer time in the morning, you get your cup of coffee, right? You go outside on the porch, you sit in the rocking chair, you make the open rocking chair there. He'll be here any second, and then you just, there's Jesus. Then you just have the conversation. And he says, well, you gotta trust me with that. And you're gonna be like, okay, Jesus. And that's it, right? That would be so much easier, wouldn't it? I envy the apostles. I envy the apostles so much. For hearing that, not for all the martyrdom, they can keep that. I don't want any of that. But I envy the fact that they got to see him face to face and they got to interact with him face to face in that way. But if we're honest, trusting a God that we can't see is hard. Trusting a God that we can't always see working is hard. And as we learned a couple weeks ago, just because he, we don't see it doesn't mean he's not working. It just means it's harder to trust him. It just means it's more difficult. It's more challenging to trust him. And if you decide today, and if you're listening to me, and you say, yeah, you know what, I got an area in my life that, yeah, that's what it is. I gotta, I, I gotta go ahead and handle that. I gotta turn that over to God. I gotta hand that to him. I gotta trust him. I want you to understand, it's not going to be easy. It's not gonna happen overnight. It's not, gonna, it's not like flipping on a light switch. Trusting the Lord with your life takes time. Trusting every aspect of your life to him takes time. So don't get discouraged if you find yourself later on going, ah, I thought I was supposed to trust God there. Yeah, it's okay. It's going to happen. You're going to struggle. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Rome says, the, thing I, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I do not want to do, I do. And he's the Apostle Paul. So it's okay. You're not going to get it right every time. But it's the beginning and the striving for that. Because here's the good news. God's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. So if you mess it up today, get better at it tomorrow. If you mess it up tomorrow, get better at it the next day. Trust him a little bit more tomorrow than you trust him today. Make that decision and start moving forward. 
He understands your hesitation. He understands your apprehension. He understands the uncomfortableness of it. He understands how hard it is for you to let that go. He understands how difficult it is. He's not going anywhere, and he's right there. You remember how patient Jesus was with all the disciples? They never got it right, like at all. Peter cut a dude's ear off in the garden, in the garden. Jesus has said, love thy neighbor, and Peter's like, accept that one. (laughs) They don't get it right. They don't, and it's okay. God understands. But if we're honest, we have places in our life that we don't trust him, don't we? In fact, maybe as I was talking, you thought about an area of your life that you know you're not trusting the Lord in. That you know deep down you're just not. And there's all sorts of reasons. There's probably some pretty good ones that you sit back and say, yeah, I'm not trusting him in that space. I'm not trusting him in this space. But if you want the joy in your life, then you've got to take that step of trusting him. You have to to decide to trust him. It's something that you have to work on because he's not going anywhere. There's a couple different areas of our life where we resist. So I've got an exercise that I want us to do. I want you to, if you're brave enough, to take the pen and paper that's, that's on your seat, and I want you to write down the area of your life that God has been speaking to you, that he says, that's the area I need you to trust me. I want you to pray, and I want you to listen to what the Holy Spirit says. Because every one of us has an area of our life that we aren't trusting the Lord. So as I welcome the worship team back up here, and we get ready to sing, ask this question honestly. What is the area of my life that I trust God the least? What is the area of my life that I trust God the least? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you're good inviting God into so many different areas of your life, but the minute you think of him in your marriage or in your relationships, you're uncomfortable and you don't want any part of that. Maybe it's not your marriage. Maybe it's your, the provision, right? Maybe it's money. Maybe you sit back and go, God, I'm good putting you everywhere else, but when it comes to my money and providing for me and my family, I just can't trust you there because what happens if you don't come through, right? That's always the fear. It's like, God, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. I'm not comfortable giving you that space. Maybe it's just flat your career. God sit back and he's like, I need you to give me that. And you're like, God, I'm not giving you my career because I've worked so hard. God, haven't you paid attention to how hard I've worked? I've worked so hard to get to this place. And you just want me to hand it over to you? I can't do that. Maybe it's emotional struggles. Maybe it's your past. Maybe it's what you've been through that you struggle handing to God. Because you're afraid what he might do. Or maybe you're afraid of what he might say. Or maybe you're afraid what he might think or maybe there's some shame 
involved in that. So as we sing today, I want you to take that card that you wrote that down on. I want you to fold it in half. And during the song, as we're singing, I want you to set them here on the altar. I want it to be a symbol that you are leaving that thing to Jesus, that you are trusting God in that area of your life. Listen to to the Spirit and let him guide you on what that thing is. But come up and set it on the altar and listen to me. Leave it here. Leave it here. So will you please stand, sing, and set that thing at the altar and trust him because he loves you and he cares for you.